Welcome to the Bridging Theology Podcast, which connects scholarship to Christian life. I am Dr. Claudia Herrera Montero, one member of the hosting team, along with Drs. Beth Stobel, Candace Smith, Kevin Hill, and Ryan Reed. Today's episode features a conversation with Dr. Paul Foster. Paul is professor in New Testament language, literature, and theology at the University of Edinburgh. He is a specialist in the New Testament and other 1st and 2nd century early Christian literature. Watch for his upcoming edited volume, The Apostolic Fathers, Volume 4 in the Ancient Library of the New Testament Studies, which will be published by Sunderbank in early 2023. Our hosts today are Dr. Kevin Hill, who specializes in patristic theology, and Dr. Candace Smith, who specializes in womanist thought and practical theology. If you enjoy today's episode, please consider sharing it with others through social media. And now on with the conversation. Thanks, Claudia, and thank you all for listening. I'm Kevin Hill. And I'm Candace Smith. Today, we are very pleased to have with us Dr. Paul Foster. Paul, welcome to the Bridge in Theology podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Let's start with something, um, a little icebreaker. Tell us a little something about yourself that most people don't know. Well, thank you very much for inviting me along. It's a pleasure to be with you both today. Um, I guess what the audience won't see at home is um, my good looks. Um, If they could, they'd be chuckling now. But what they won't know is I've been a television star in the past. Um, My first job was as a mathematics teacher in rural Australia. And during that time, I made a series of videos on how to use the new graphics calculator. And from memory, this was a series of three one-hour-long programs. And I think in all honesty, they probably constitute the most geeky television series ever made. Um, I don't think Netflix has yet made a bid for the rights to it, but I'm sure it's only a matter of time. And then the royalties will start coming in, I'm sure. But until then, I'll stick with theology. So if we looked this up on YouTube, would we be able to track down those videos? Or do you think they've been lost to time? I I suspect it was long before. They're probably on celluloid, so hopefully not. Hopefully no one will ever find them. But uh, I think this was Texas Instruments, TI-82 or 83, and um, this was a big new innovation in math. So I made these for, I, I think, the mathematical teachers in Western Australia. So that was my previous career in a way. Well, that's really interesting that you had a career before you were in academia. I think a lot of Christians struggle with finding their vocation or listening for a sense of calling. So it's really interesting to hear people's stories, especially when they end up teaching or preaching. So I know that you're both ordained and you're also a professor. I would love to hear some of your journey and how you ended up researching and teaching and writing on, among other things, the first two centuries of the church. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I guess my own journey in reality grew out of my Christian faith. Um, I was interested in what I believed, why I believed it, and I was always very interested in the Bible, I guess, just through people who were gifted Bible teachers at the time. I've mentioned my time in Australia while I was working as a school teacher in my first posting in rural Australia, um, the minister or the priest in that area looked after four churches, so he couldn't be at all of them on a Sunday morning because they were, you know, 50 to 100 kilometers apart. Mm -hmm. So I was asked to preach in one of those churches on Sundays, he wasn't there. I imagine they were fairly dreadful sermons looking back. So, um, But 
I mean, that got me more interested in reading books about theology and reading commentaries, which, you know, I thought were absolutely fascinating. So um, I, I guess it's through that personal faith, having to do some practical things in the church that got me interested. Then I began to take a few theology courses part-time, mainly around the languages, the Hebrew and the Greek. And after that, I decided I wanted to take the full degree. Ordination only happened later during the doctorate and um, alongside that, really. So I guess for those trying to work out how to do it, in many ways, I think it's a journey or a process. No one's story's the same. But, you know, I think just talking to people who are experienced, maybe have trodden a similar path is the way to go about this. I, I think people also need to understand the realities if they want an academic career. It's probably years of study from undergraduate, maybe a master's degree, a doctorate. There's probably the best part of a decade of study there. And there are also financial or personal sacrifices. So um, I, I think it's important to look at those things as well. And, you know, I think as someone wiser than I once said, you know, you've got to count the cost before you take a major undertaking. So I think discernment, being open to advice, keeping your options open, and discussing your plans with those you trust are probably the best pieces of advice I have. Thank you for sharing some of your story with us. I want to ask you just in your own words, just as a follow-up, what is the purpose of Christian scholarship to you? I guess when I find out, I'll let you know. (laughs) Can I give you an academic (laughs) answer and say, it depends what one means by Christian scholarship. If it's scholarship about Christianity, then I guess that can and is undertaken by people of all faiths and those of no faith. And in that sense, I guess the goal is the same as most academic disciplines to further knowledge in the field that's being researched, trying to find fresh insights, and, you know, just give giving humanity a better understanding of itself, really. But I guess if the term Christian scholarship refers more to scholarship done by and carried out by Christians, then maybe the goals might be slightly different, and they might include things like training leaders in the church or in faith communities, helping to establish a more reasoned or secure basis for faith commitments. And I guess for Christians, maybe such study is an act of glorifying God in itself. So I I think, you know, there is perhaps some difference in approaching um, Christian scholarship from a secular or from a faith viewpoint. But I hope in both cases, the standards are high and that people are able to talk to one another, no matter what their starting points are or what their their final goals might be in this process. If we continue on the subject of Christian scholarship for a moment, it's certainly important that Christian scholars produce research that is of the highest academic standards. Um, do you think scholars who have those abilities should focus exclusively on researching and writing at that very detailed level? Or do you think that they should also try where it makes sense to then communicate their findings to a broader audience, perhaps a lay audience? No, I I think we should definitely try and make it understandable to people within the church and outside. I, I think There might be a difference to take an example. I've mentioned I taught maths. Um, Probably if someone was researching an area in advanced theoretical mathematics, that's very hard to distill down. But I, I would hope in many ways that, you know, 
that the kind of scholarship that we're doing is at least accessible to anyone who has a humanities or a social science degree. And I think communication is really important in our scholarship. And we often talk, I I mean, every area has its own jargon, but about knowledge transfer and impact. And I think knowledge isn't something to be rigorously guarded and not to be shared. I, I think the whole purpose is the sharing of knowledge. And I think I actually learn more when I try and explain my ideas to people who are not specialists. I think if we genuinely have a good idea, something that we think is a breakthrough, it's often when we explain it to people who aren't caught up in the rarefied atmosphere of the academy that we get some of the more interesting questions back to us And we actually find if we can explain our ideas simply, they often make a lot more sense. So I don't even think it's something we should do as an add-on. I think it's actually integral to our vocation as scholars, scholar teachers. And I guess taking that as a Christian, I, I think I often take up invitations to talk to ministerial groups or church groups to share knowledge, to get those perspectives. And I'm often the one I suspect who's more enriched through doing that than they are. So, yeah, I I mean, that's definitely a very important part of scholarship. Yeah, I I agree. I I call that, yeah, thank you. We call that the spirituality of the academic life for me. So I feel that, you know, our scholarship should be an extension of our spiritual journey um, and and reach back and connect. Um, One of your recent works is on the major commentary of the epistles to the Colossians, which includes the household codes, including Colossians 3, 22, that says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but wholeheartedly fear in the Lord. And in the U.S. context, many older Black Christians wrestle with the Pauline texts, um, certain passages of them, because they've been very controversial, um, particularly the household codes, passages about slaves being obedient to their masters, um, because they were used to subjugate Blacks during chattel slavery and the Jim Crow era. What insights from your scholarship could you offer about the differences between the context of slavery in first century church um, and modern day in regards to those passages? I mean, thank you. What an important question. And I think we just have to face the realities of human lived experience in the 19th and 20th century, and maybe at times the role the Bible played in that, you know, may be misused, but it still played a role in it. I I think there are definitely days when we all wish Paul had said a lot more or given a resounding condemnation of slavery. However, you're right, we, we need to remember that Paul's context was not our context, nor the context of the 19th or 20th century USA. And I actually think the household code in Colossians is more subversive than we recognize at times. If you look at some of the Greco-Roman household codes in Aristotle and other um, writers, they are addressed to the person in power, the master or the paterfamilias, telling them how they should regulate the household. One thing that's striking in Colossians is that in each of the pairings, the first party addressed is always the person we might think is the powerless one. So wives are addressed before husbands, children before parents, and slaves before masters. So that may say something about the makeup of Pauline churches, but I think it's also privileging those who would often have been seen as 
having no voice and not worth addressing. Now, that's not to say that in itself is doing enough. I think by doing that, though, there is a subversion of the standard power dynamic. And I mean, even in that text, one of the points that the writer makes is that slaves are not ultimately bound to an earthly master. They are serving someone else in their service. And I guess the Greco-Roman world was one with a complex relationship around slavery. There was a huge number of slaves. But after things like the Spartacus revolt, there was a fear among the masters and the freed people that they would be murdered in their beds by their slaves. So I guess Paul is worried, or whoever writes Colossians, not to totally destabilize that. Their first concern is obviously the spread of the gospel. Now, we might have questions to ask about how can one spread the gospel while leaving people in a position of weakness and powerlessness. One answer, of course, has always been to say that Paul thought the eschatological age was coming immediately, so he wasn't concerned about those things. I neither think that's totally helpful or totally true. I I think there's more to it than that. And I think if we look at Paul's letter to um, Philemon, where he's dealing with the case of the runaway slave Anisimus, I think although Paul plays the deferential part there and sends Anisimus back, I mean, he's actually saying to Philemon, you know, if I owe you anything, send me the bill, I will pay it. Oh, but just remember, if it's relevant, you owe me your very salvation. I mean, it's total (laughs) manipulation, isn't it? But he also says to Philemon, you know, I'm sending your slave Onesimus back to you, but I'm sending him back as so much more as a beloved brother. And I think there is an implication there, although not spelled out, because, you know, this letter is going to be read in front of the church and maybe Philemon will be shamed if he doesn't do the what is implied, which is you can't hold a beloved brother as a slave. This is someone who's your equal in Christ. So I, I think that's part of it. Now, I'm no expert in U.S. history. and. I guess we all find some of the exegetical moves that were made by those who wanted to say slavery had biblical support in some ways to be a salutary lesson in how we can still read the text in detail even today and maybe miss its overall message. And I mean, I don't totally understand the Jim Crow perspective, but I think it's said or pretended to say that everyone was equal, but that equality was carried out in separation, that there should be separate schools, separate churches, separate buses, and so on. The trouble with that is, I don't think that's equality, first of all. And second of all, I don't think it's Christianity. So, I mean, we can dress things up to make the Bible say what we think it means, but The reason I don't think it's Christianity is the message of Jesus, as I understand it, is unconditional love of neighbor and seeking the best for others ahead of ourselves. And, you know, Paul, I think, also speaks about this when he says ethnic, social and religious distinctions no longer hold. There's no longer male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. And even the letter of, of to the Ephesians talks about breaking down dividing walls, in that case between Jews and Gentiles. But I think the implication of a passage goes much further than that. And really, back to what Paul said to Philemon, if people are our brothers and sisters in Christ, or even just our human brothers and sisters, you know, we can't be engaged in behaviors or using the Bible 
to cause separation and division. So I, I think the household code perhaps does a lot more than we sometimes see, but it also needs to be read in light of wider Pauline theology. And I guess it also makes me question where my blind spots might still be and what I might be doing, which isn't working to promote love of neighbor. So I, I think, you know, we all need to take a hard look at ourselves in light of these things. It sounds to me as though you understand that the Apostle Paul uh, was quite a radical thinker, transformed by the gospel. So, although obviously he was still a first century Jew, his thinking was quite a departure from that of some of his contemporaries. I think very much so. I, I mean, my friend Michael Bird would describe Paul as a very radical Jew, and I think that's right. I, I might even want to go a little further than that, and I think Paul's first commitment after his Damascus Road experience is to be in Christ, to be a follower of Christ, to have received a calling from Christ. And I know there are many people that would want to say that this is not a conversion experience, it's a call experience. And I think we might overplay that distinction. I mean, Paul definitely does not think he's totally moving away from one religious system to another, like just to take an example, if someone were converting, I don't know, from Christianity to Hinduism, that would be a a totally different religious system. I mean, Paul still thinks he is worshipping the same God, you know, but as a Christ believer. So, but I mean, this must still be one of the biggest changes of mind that we know about in religious history. So at some sense, there is a conversion, there's a turning around, you know, this person was a persecutor of the churches of God. And now he's trying to promote that faith, which he once tried to destroy. destroy. I, I mean, yes, it is a call, he's called to be apostle to the Gentiles. But when we consider where his starting point was, I I mean, maybe it is anachronistic, obviously, to call Paul a Christian, but he identifies himself as one who has believed in Christ. Um, Gee, I don't know what we might call someone who (laughs) believed in Christ, but maybe others, maybe a Christ believer is the safest thing. Hmm. Sometimes I get a sense that Christians are, are, of course, rightly focused on reading scripture and learning from it. But there's a sense where we don't really need to understand what happened after Acts. We don't need to look into the end of the first century and follow church history onto the second century and beyond. You've spent a lot of your career working on not just scripture, but also looking at the Apostolic Fathers, the Gospel of Peter, and other later Christian writings. Would you recommend that pastors and priests and other thoughtful intellectual Christians consider reading some of these later works? And if so, what benefit might come from them? You'll be unsurprised to hear, yes, I do recommend that they do. I mean, some of those texts are easier to access than others. And, you know, just, uh, I mean, I think the collection of texts known as the Apostolic Fathers, even among those Uh, 11 or so texts, some are easier to read. So something like The Shepherd of Hermas is a very long text. It's got lots of imagery. I don't know what's going on half the time (laughs) in that text. So I, I would not suggest that as a first place to start. But I often think something like The Letter of Polycarp to the Philippians, which is often denigrated for not having much theology in Mm. is actually a pastoral pearl in a way. I mean, Polycarp is asked to write to the Philippians about a problem they're having. Um, They've got a presbyter in the church who I think was looking after the money and 
you know, was looking after it a bit too much for his own benefit <laughs> and not the church's. So, you know, he needs to talk about that. And he also talks about trying to bring this person back along with his wife into the fold. So I think it's a beautiful pastoral piece. And we can see that Polycarp is advocating a more moderate position and urging, in some ways, the Philippians to have a forgiving attitude. So I think there's something we can learn about that and maybe see some of the problems we have today are no different from some of the problems they had in the second century. Some of them are are very different uh, in our context. I mean, we have the letters of Ignatius, which are written very quickly, maybe the seven letters over a period of a few weeks, as Ignatius is being transported to be executed in Rome. And fortunately, at least in the context in which you and I live, you know, we are not facing those life, I I guess, negating choices for our faith. That doesn't mean there aren't people in the world who aren't today, but in our own context, we're not. But I think we learn something by reading that history and paying attention to those who've gone before us in the faith. So I think they're very interesting. I think also texts like the Gospel of Peter I've written on are interesting for many reasons. Here's a text that's expanding on gospel traditions. It's a broken text. It starts and ends mid-sentence. There are about nine pages of a manuscript, and it tells a lot of the story of the passion of Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection, and some of the events after that. And I think it tells us what was important to early Christians, how people of faith appropriated, repackaged, kept retelling those traditions and keeping the story fresh in some ways. So I I think that gives us more insight into the, the stories of the Gospels as being living stories that had to be brought to life again and again. So, yeah, I I mean, some texts are, as I say, more accessible than others. And, you know, it's worth thinking about where one may start if one's going to do that. So, yeah, definitely read them. I I love what you said about their living stories that must be read and revisited again. Um, And I just would like your insight on how might the influence of women and their role in the first and second century church give encouragement and insight to the modern day church? Yeah, thank you. Um, I think at times there definitely appears to be a more egalitarian role for women in some places in the tradition, um, the fact that women are witnesses to the resurrection before anyone else is, is an important insight for us. I think also before the early Christian communities develop a rigid hierarchy, there is often opportunity for women to participate more We've also seen examples, unfortunately, of women being written out of the story. The most famous example is probably the case of um, Junia or Junias in Romans 16, who is described as being prominent among the apostles. And some of the English translations turn Junia into Junias, a male name, but um, if we look at the Greek text, we understand that although this was sometimes accented differently, this was a female name. And, you know, the fact that the ending of Romans talks of a woman as prominent among the apostles and the relationship between Aquila and Priscilla is another opportunity of, I think, partnership and commonality of purpose. So I, I think there is something there that very much speaks of that egalitarian role. I think we shouldn't 
over-romanticized the early church. There was a time of pristine egalitarianism. I, I mean, I think we see maybe in, is it 1 John 2, 19, the successionists that go out from the church. There are divisions in the church, even in First Clement among the Apostolic Fathers, um, the author of that letter writes to Corinth to complain about the young men who've ousted the long-term elders there. So, I mean, again, let's not pretend the early church was always equal, that it had no problems, that women were perfectly equal. I mean, people played power games then as now, and as the church became more established, I, I guess people were attracted to the power structures and maybe the patriarchal structures of antique society came to be brought into the church more. So, I, I mean, it's that typical undergraduate question, isn't it? You know, was the conversion of Constantine a good thing for the church or not? Well, Yes, people didn't get killed quite as much, but um, then the church becomes part of the instrument of imperial authority and power. So, I, I mean, it's one of those, yes, the early church does teach us something, but it's more complex than just an easy answer saying women had absolute freedoms. And we still struggle today to make sure that everyone has freedom in church. If, if there's anywhere there shouldn't be power, it should be in the church. We should be more worried about helping the least of our brothers to grow, or sisters especially, to grow into faith and to develop their gifts for the benefit of all of us. So, I mean, we need that sense of egalitarianism and maybe not playing our power games out in communities of faith. But if that were easy, we would have done it already, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I often think ecclesiology is one of the most difficult parts of theology and, and the lived experience of trying to take what we believe and, and somehow bring it into community. And that sound means it's time for our intermission. What we do here is we ask a series of lighthearted fun questions to break things up a little bit. And I wanted to start with the first one. If you won an all-inclusive trip to anywhere in the world, where would you go? Oh, wow. Well, I, I'm looking out of my window here in Edinburgh, and it's quite dreary and dark. So I, I guess my immediate choice would be somewhere sunny, glitzy, and with good food. So I don't know if that's Las Vegas or somewhere else, but <laughs> I guess more seriously, I, I'd choose to go somewhere I hadn't been before. So I, I've been to the Holy Land and Greece. I think I might go to Turkey. I haven't been there before. And um, I'd want to go and see some of the ancient sites like Ephesus or Aphrodisias. Um, I'd even go to Colossae. There, there's actually not much there. It's just a grassy mound. So I, I wouldn't spend long there. But I'd like to go to Smyrna and see Polycarp's home and I, I guess even Istanbul and see places like Hagia Sophia. And Turkey is always warmer than Edinburgh, so I, I would enjoy that. So I'd see the sights and then hit the beach and eat the fine food, I think. That's a great choice. So what is one book in theology or biblical studies that everyone should read? Well, definitely not any I've written. Um, <laughs> This is a challenging question, and I think my answer comes out of things I've already said. I, I think in our studies, sometimes there are too many sub-disciplines that atomize our understanding of Christianity. So for that reason, I'd choose a book that provides a framework or gives an, early, an overview of the early church, maybe something like... Um, WHC Friends, The Rise of Christianity, which looks at Christianity down to about the 6th or 7th century. It's a big book of some thousand pages, but I think it puts pay to the myth that 
nothing really happened in Christianity from about the year 100 to the year 1517. So uh, I think I'd want someone to read a book that gave them the overview. So I'm curious, what's the best compliment you've ever received? I think I'm still waiting for the first one, to be honest with you. Um, I think I'm most encouraged when one of my students tells me how a course or how something I've taught them's inspired them, especially if it helps them to pursue a career in theology. So they're the comments I value the most, I think. So yeah, something along those lines. And if you could have coffee or tea with any historical figure who lived after the first century, who would you choose? Um, maybe someone like Eusebius of Caesarea, because he seemed to know so much when he wrote his church history. So I'd want to ask him how he knew all that, what text <laughs> he'd seen firsthand, you know, and, you know, um, maybe ask him to bury some deep in a cave that I could <laughs> discover, like Indiana Jones, a few centuries later. So, well, if you do find some in a cave somewhere, let's revive your television career. Oh, indeed. <laughs> so, if you had to eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? I'm really quite partial to cheese, but I think eating cheese all my life might not good be good for me, and probably not good for those around me. So um, I'd probably go for something a little more healthy and nutritious, maybe a nice piece of salmon with plenty of vegetables. Mm -hmm. But I do have a sweet tooth, so I'd probably have it followed by a creme brulee with coffee mm -hmm. and then some more chocolates afterwards. <laughs> um, I, I pretend to be healthy, but the chocolate gets me every time. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds delicious. And that's the second answer somebody's thought about trying to be healthy and eating salmon. So very interesting. Oh, very good. <laughs> okay, so we're going to move to the second half of our interview. So we just want to ask a couple more questions. What is your favorite book of the Bible? And why? I know it's a hard one. <laughs> I, I think it is the Gospel of Matthew, and it's not just because I've written about it. I, I think it's because it tells the story of Jesus, who for me is the central figure of the Bible and, you know, the reason for reading the Bible. And in many ways, I think it is has become our normative story of Jesus. I, I often, when I'm teaching Matthew, I, I go into the class and say to students, um, I, I'm the kind of lecturer that doesn't like to make overblown or unsubstantiated statements. So let me begin by saying that the Gospel of Matthew is the most important and influential Christian text ever written. And in one way, I, well, in more than one way, I think that's true. I think if you look at churches that have a lectionary, Matthew is probably the most read text, maybe alongside the Gospel of John in the church lectionary. So it's the text people hear the most often from, you know, Orthodox Christianity, Catholicism, in my own Anglican tradition and many other churches. So I think it has an influence there. I think when we talk about the ethics of Jesus, the teach, the go-to text is the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I know there's a parallel in Luke, the Sermon on the Plain, but the Sermon on the Mount is more developed with the series of Beatitudes and, you know, so much of the teaching about, you know, look at the lilies or look at the birds and you know, these things that are so memorable, which really teaches Jesus' values as we've come to understand them. So I think in many ways, Matthew gives us that story of Jesus, which has been so influential and shaped the church. I mean, it's not a text without problems. I, I mean, at the end of it, we hear 
the people at the crucifixion, the Jews present shout out, you know, his blood be upon our heads and the heads of our children. And that is a text with a very influential history, but a very negative influential history. It, it helped shape some of the pogroms during the Middle Ages. It was a text that maybe was heard in some places we don't even want to mention around the middle of the 20th century. And I think at times we almost cannot exegete a text like that. We can only fall silent and in a way just admit its use or its misuse was something we have to be ashamed about. But leaving those things to the side, if one ever can, I think the Gospel of Matthew has such a rich story of Jesus. And even the forward-looking ending of the Great Commission is something that speaks of hope going forward, a future life for the believing community as well. So yeah, I, I think the Gospel of Matthew, for me, without any doubt. In your opinion, what's a common misconception about early Christianity that you wish would be corrected for good? Maybe what I've hinted at already. Um, I think one view that's incorrect is a view that sees a radical disconnect between the Jesus movement of the first century and Christianity of the second century and later centuries. Um, reading some scholarship, I, one is left with the impression, and I think this is the point some scholars want to make, actually, is that they do not believe that anything that could be called Christianity existed prior maybe to Ignatius of Antioch, and that there's very little connection with what came before. And obviously, there is development, there's a process there. But people like Ignatius are citing Paul at times. They're also citing Matthew's gospel or alluding to it. So, I mean, they obviously see a connection. And I think we need to understand that Christianity is always very heavily dependent on, you know, its roots in Judaism. Um, I would never deny that Jesus was very much a Jew, a first century Jew, and Paul was as well, you know. But Christianity is just not something that is without connection, a total deviation from that faith that first century believers in Jesus expressed. Different believers expressed that differently. They articulated the relationship between Christianity and Judaism differently. So I think we have to be alive to those differences, but also see the continuities as well as the distinctions. Absolutely. So with all your researching and writing, how do you intentionally carve out um, the time to study the scriptures for personal devotion and spiritual growth? I'm not sure that I do plan it out particularly well. Um, I think being involved in a faith community and being in some ways accountable and responsible to people there, I'm forced to do it, but forced in a good way. I mean, it's a discipline. So I think discipline is important and doing this within the context of a believing community. I, I remember it used to be said by some scholars, not from my country, but um, the problem with theology in Britain was that theology was practiced too much within the sound of church bells. And I'm not sure I actually think that's a weakness. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I think by having that connection, one, we spoke earlier about doing scholarship for the service of the church. And I think by sharing in that devotional life, you do carve out time. So structure, being accountable to others for that is part of it. But 
everyone will find their own way through that. And within their own faith traditions, they'll probably find different means of doing it or or different tools that have, are available for doing it. We already kind of hinted at this, but what's one piece of advice that you'd give to, I, I guess this would be early career researchers and instructors, lecturers? I think my first, maybe my only piece of advice is enjoy what you're doing. I, I mean, I, it's such a privilege, our scholarship, our, our work. I, I mean, I remember one of my colleagues, the late and much-loved Larry Hurtado, would say to me, you know, don't tell the university but I'd do this job for nothing. You know? <laughs> I mean, yeah, so would I, but I, I hope the University <laughs> of Edinburgh doesn't stop paying me nonetheless. But, I mean, it's it's what I want to do. If this were not my job, it would be my full-time hobby in a way. How lucky am I to be employed to do what I want? So I would say be curious about scholarship to people. Um be willing to learn from those with whom you disagree. You know, go and listen to those whose views you think are, are incorrect. Ask them out for a coffee. Try and understand why they read the same texts as I read in such different ways. And, you know, scholarship is a collective enterprise. It's not about me getting status or glory. You know, it's about learning. If if anything, the more I, I'm in this game, the more I realize I'm still a student. You know, I, I'm as much a student as my PhD students and my undergraduates. I've, I've just had a bit more time to read a few more books than they have and to read a few more primary texts. But they're often the ones coming up with the exciting questions. And you know, you'll be in a lecture and someone will say, you know, why is this not the case? And you'll say, well, it's not the case because, oh, oh, well, <laughs> well, let me come back to you. And you think, well, why is that not the case? And it's those questions that just make you rethink your assumptions. So, I mean, the, I think in early career, it's very easy to have all your time taken up writing lectures. So, can you write your lectures in such a way that they might be useful as a book later on? Can you, you know, still invest in your scholarship alongside your teaching? I mean, you've got to do some administration if you're going to be a good team player, but can you do that in a way that's still supporting your scholarly interests as well? So try and get into the admin job that you're most interested in, maybe supporting students or or being on a research committee you know play your part but make sure you're still doing the thing you're passionate about mm, awesome i, I want to put you on the spot because you're somebody who also is ordained so you have one foot in the academy and one foot in in the church the same question do you have any advice for for pastors or for priests or guest lecturers or guest preachers in churches you don't stop theological studies once you get ordained. You're committing to a life of scholarship. And, you know, that's easier for some people than others. So, again, maybe make yourself accountable to a group of fellow pastors or ministers. Maybe meet once a month as part of a reading group. Make sure that your church gives you time for scholarship. I, I mean, I'm not sure if any of us has this luxury, but again, other aphorisms or platitudes used to say, you know, an hour in the study for every minute in the pulpit. Now, fortunately, in my tradition, sermons are only about 10 or 12 minutes long, where they're half an hour long. That might not be possible. <laughs> but, you know, it is, I think, a life of Scott. You, as a minister, you may be the theological resource for your community. So I would say for those training, you know, take your scholarship seriously. You are equipping yourself. 
again, we mentioned medics, they don't, when they finish their medical training, stop learning. They have accreditation exams throughout their career. They have to keep their skills up. And I think it should be no different in ministry as well. You know, work to keep the skills up, be someone who's a minister who's constantly training yourself in the best, latest scholarship. Don't just read the things that reinforce your views. Read the things that don't and Mm -hmm. try and think why you think they're wrong, where they might have good points. So remain a student all your life. If you could wake up tomorrow and be an expert um, in one additional theological subdiscipline, what would you choose and why? (laughs) Wow. Um, I don't think I'm very expert in any, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, I guess it is tangential to what I I do. I've always been interested in Syriac Christianity. I don't read Syriac. So I, I think having a greater knowledge of that strand of early Christianity would be good. I, I mean, I mean something further afield, I, I think I would also like to be more up to date on the scholarship of pastoral and practical theology. This is something I'm very much not an expert in. So, um, you know, just to be able to have the download of all I would need to know on that would be great as well. But I'm, I'm fascinated by everything. So anything that I could be given for free would be wonderful. <laughs> Paul, it's been a real pleasure and a privilege to speak with you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for your time. It's been my privilege. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, visit our website at bridgingtheology.com. If you would like to support the show, please subscribe to it in your podcast player, review it, or share it with others. This episode was produced by Kevin Hill.